Good morning, Bridgeway. How's it going? Good. Well, hey, it's great to see you. Welcome once again to worship with us. If we haven't met, my name is Brian Kiley. I'm the singles pastor here. We're really glad that you are here. I want to say hello to those of you joining us online. Glad to have you with us as well. Uh, this morning, we are in part 35 of our Being Jesus series. If you're new or visiting with us, we're in the middle of just a massive series where we're taking all four Gospels, the accounts of Jesus' life found in Scripture, and putting them together into one story so we can get the most complete understanding of Jesus' life that we can. Uh, today, we're going to be in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we'll have the passages up on the screen since we'll be kind of pulling from all three of those. If you want to follow along in your Bible, probably Matthew 13 is the best spot to go. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to go there. And I'll just be honest with you as we get started, we have a tremendous amount of ground to cover, and I want to get you out of here on time because I don't want you or our amazing Kidsway teachers to hate me, so we're just going to dive right in, and, but before I do that, I, just, I want to give you an idea of where we're going, so if you have the handout sheet you received when you walked in the front door, I want to give you the fill in the blank, and the, the fill in the blank is this, that God's word will soften some hearts and harden others. God's word will soften some hearts and harden others. One of the great mysteries of our faith is to what extent are we responsible for our decisions, and to what extent does God sort of have everything already worked out, right? Uh, and we could quite easily do a full teaching on this subject. We do several teachings on the subject. But for now, I just want to acknowledge the reality that the scriptures, on the one hand, clearly teach that, that God is sovereign. God is in absolute control of all things. But on the other side, the scriptures also teach human responsibility, that we are responsible for the decisions and choices that we make. I mean, you've got, for example, on the one hand, you've got passages like Psalm 115, verse 3, which says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Which you just don't see that verse on a lot of coffee cups for some reason. But then, uh, but then you've also got passages like Exodus chapter 32 where God is just fed up with the nation of Israel because of their disobedience and he says to Moses, Moses, duck and cover bro. I'm going to incinerate these fools and you and I can just start over again. And Moses talks to God, and God changes his mind. Moses, it appears, seems to talk God out of it. And then there are verses like Romans 9, 18, which say God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills, which seems to indicate that our response to God is determined by God. And then, but then you've also got the teachings of Jesus that say, for example, in John chapter 6, verse 37, he says, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, which seems to indicate that, that anybody that comes to him will be welcome and that it's our choice. But then only a few verses later, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And there's all sorts of tension here. Is it divine sovereignty? Is it human responsibility? Is, is God completely sovereign or is he moved by our prayers? And the scriptures teach that the answer to that question is yes. <laughs> or am I responsible for my actions? Or does God have everything already worked out? Yes. 
If you've been in church world for any length of time, perhaps you've, you've heard these terms. The, the big, one of the biggest debates within Christianity for, for centuries has been the issue of predestination versus free will. And if you're not familiar with those terms, here's basically what that means. Do we choose God? Do we come to God and choose him? Or does he choose us? And I'll just tell you right now, people smarter than me have been debating that one for centuries. So we're probably not going to solve that one this morning. Uh, but for now, I just want to be clear that the Bible does clearly teach that God is sovereign over all things. And yet the Bible also teaches, in, in the words of the prophets, in the words of Jesus, in the words of Paul, in the words of so many other biblical authors, that there's human responsibility, that we are responsible. And that just seems to be a tension that the authors of Scripture were comfortable with. Frankly, I think they were more comfortable with it than I am sometimes. But, but we're going to see that tension in play in the passages we have to look at today. So with that, let's dive in. The passages will be on the screen to either side of me. It says this, And when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him, that's Jesus, he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he was teaching them many things in parables. So Jesus is preparing to teach. It's a standing room only crowd. He's out in a boat, sitting on a boat. People are crowded on the beach, anxious to hear what he has to say. And it says he's teaching them in parables. Now a parable is simply a story that uses everyday objects, events, and circumstances to illustrate spiritual truth. Jesus loved to use parables. In fact, 35% of the teaching of Jesus that we have recorded in scripture comes in parable form. Now, parables are tricky because they're sort of meant to be tricky. They're meant to stimulate our thinking a little bit. Oftentimes what Jesus would do is he would take a commonly accepted idea and sort of flip it on its head a little bit. So, 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 so a parable requires some effort to understand. However, they can also make complex topics and complex issues much easier to understand because what Jesus would often do is he would take a very abstract concept. Like he, he starts many parables saying, the kingdom of God is like. So take a very abstract concept and then compare it to something that is very concrete. Today we're going to look at three parables and all three of them use farming stories to, to make the point Jesus is trying to make. And this would have been very understandable for his listeners living in a very agrarian agricultural society. And what we're going to see in the first parable is that the mindset of the listener is critical to their comprehension of the parable. For those desiring to hear and to understand, parables will bring a greater sense of truth. They'll bring greater understanding to what Jesus is trying to say. But, but to those who are dismissive and, and hard-hearted, parables will only further harden their hearts. So with that, let's dig into our first parable. We're going to spend the majority of our time on this one. It says this, and he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it, and it yielded no grain." And some fell on the good soil and grew, produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. 
And he, as he said these things, he called out, he who has ears, let him hear. So Jesus is kind enough to tell us what this parable means in some of the verses that follow. So we're going to get to that in just a second. But I just want to focus on this phrase he uses real quick here. He says, he who has ears, let them hear. And here's the point of that statement. What he's saying is he's saying, I want you to really listen and consider what I have to say. Don't just give this a passing thought. Don't just let it go in one ear and out the other. I want you to wrestle with what I'm telling you. See, Jesus understood this principle that shallow thinking leads to shallow living. And if we want to have lives of depth, if we want to have these rich lives as followers of Christ, we must be willing to take the teachings of Jesus and really wrestle with them and consider their meaning. It goes on, it says this, and when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him what this parable meant. I don't know about you, but I find that verse to be of great comfort to me. If you've ever read anything in scripture or the teachings of Jesus and you get done with it and you're like, what now? Right? This was the state that the disciples were in. Do not despair. Uh, they would listen to Jesus teach and they would, yeah, Jesus, way to go, great job, oh, we love you, woo! And then they'd get behind closed doors and like, yeah, okay, uh, Jesus, great speech and all. What did you just say? Right? And I think it's, it's helpful to illustrate this, this principle that, that understanding takes time. We, we'll grow in our understanding over time. This was all new to his disciples. Maybe this is new to you. And that's okay. Our understanding will ultimately grow. But we don't have ultimate understanding immediately. And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. Secrets? Ooh, it's like, what's that all about? So, so secret here, it doesn't mean like special knowledge, like, hey, you know the secret handshake, way to go. That, that's not the issue here. The, the Greek word is mysterion, which could also be translated mysteries. And here's the idea that that word conveys. A, a secret or a mystery is something which is meaningless for the uninitiated. It's meaningless for the uninitiated. Like, let me give you the easiest example I can think of in terms of in terms of things we do in our Christian life, is, is communion, right? When we come together and we celebrate uh, Christ's body broken and bloodshed for the forgiveness of our sins. If you're a follower of Christ, that's incredibly meaningful. It's an incredibly meaningful thing for me, and I know for many of you. But if you're not a believer, especially if you have no knowledge of Christian traditions, that's like the weirdest thing ever, right? It's just a bunch of people eating little crackers and drinking juice out of the world's smallest cup. It's like, what's the point of that? Right? It's a mystery. It's meaningless to the uninitiated. Meaningful on the inside, but just kind of weird from the outside. And in this case, Jesus is saying the reality of God's kingdom will begin to be understood, but by those who welcome its coming. But, but for those who reject it, it will remain meaningless. And he goes on. You've been given the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables. I speak in parables. So that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. 
But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and hear what you hear and did not hear it. So what's going on here? I have no idea. Let's just skip it. Move, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> This is an extraordinarily complex text that I'm going to try to explain very quickly. In, in short, we see both God's mercy and his judgment. It appears almost on the surface that Jesus is saying, hey, I'm speaking in this sort of cryptic way so that people will be unable to understand me. Well, that's, it's, I admit it sounds like that, but that's not what he's saying at all. We see in, in this passage divine sovereignty and human responsibility. We see God's mercy and we see God's judgment. On the one hand, Jesus says... To, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. And this is so critical for us to, for us to understand. J Jesus says, if you're a follower of Christ, the understanding that you have has been given to you. Y your ability to comprehend who Jesus is, your ability to comprehend what the cross means, your ability to, to comprehend salvation by grace through faith, th this is given to you by the mercies of God. The Bible tells us that even the faith to believe is given to us by God because God in his mercy has opened your eyes. That's why you have the faith to believe. It's nothing to brag about. The notion of a, of a Christian ever bragging about their knowledge or bragging about their understanding is ridiculous because the Bible clearly teaches even the faith to believe is a gift. There's nothing for us to boast about. I mean, Paul says that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Why can you look to the cross and see the power of God where so many look to the cross and see foolishness? It's, it's God's mercy in your life. It's God's complete, undeserved mercy on your life to, to, that he has opened your eyes to, to see the beauty of Christ. But there's another side to this coin as well, M much of what I just read is a quotation of Isaiah chapter 6. And, and what happened in Isaiah chapter 6 is, is God comes to Isaiah and he sends him out to preach. He says, I want you to go out and preach, but just the little thing, I want to mention this to you, people aren't going to listen. They're going, they going to have ears, but they will not hear. They're going to have eyes, but they will not see. They're going to be so dull and hard-hearted that you will think you're talking to a brick wall. And, and if they would hear... And if they would see, I would heal them. But they refuse to do so. They do not want that. So my judgment upon them for their rebellion is that your preaching is only going to continue to harden their hearts. And Jesus is saying that same dynamic existed in his day. That there are those who were like the people in Isaiah's day. They, they would hear, but they would not hear. They would deny what was obvious right in front of them, so they were blind to understand deeper truth. And we need to understand, Jesus isn't speaking in anger here. Jesus certainly takes no delight in, in people being hard-hearted and being unable to understand. If anything, he's speaking with loving sorrow as one who, who has this tremendous gift to offer, but, but has just the heartbreaking reality that people just simply won't take it. See, we see divine sovereignty and we see human responsibility, and we see that today. When, when God's word goes out, it has a softening effect on some and a hardening effect on others, and that's not a popular idea. But the scriptures clearly teach it, and I don't know about you, but experience, at least from my perspective, confirms it. So now Jesus explains the parable by telling us about what each of the four soils represent, represents. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard, 
then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. But first, there are those who hear the word and they just don't care. They just don't care. They hear God's word, they hear the gospel, and they're like, no thanks, not interested, don't care. It's a hard heart and a closed mind. And listen, our call is not to mock those people. Our call is not to argue with those people. Hard soil does not become soft by arguing with it. It only becomes harder. Well, it doesn't, nothing happens to soil if you argue with it, but you get my point. Um, <laughs> our, our call is simply to, to, to love them. He keeps going. And the ones on the rocky ground are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So so here's the picture. It's not this rocky soil he's referring to. It's not like the soil in my backyard that has a bunch of gigantic rocks in it that are a huge pain when I'm trying to plant my garden. The picture is this. That throughout Galilee, there were vast areas where there would be a thin layer of soil on top of a thick layer of limestone rock. So what would happen is a seed that was sown in these sorts of environments, it would germinate and it would spring up quickly, but ultimately it had no root. It had, there, weren't, there, weren't, there wasn't enough space for the roots to grow and to gain the nutrients that it needed, so it would quickly wither. So if the hard soil represents a hard heart, the rocky soil represents a shallow heart. And I want to give you a few pictures of what a shallow heart might look like. That the shallow heart is the heart that comes to God looking only for an emotional experience. I'm not against emotional experiences. I'm not a real emotional guy, but to be able to engage God with our emotions is a beautiful thing. But, but faith is more than an emotional experience. And if all we're after is an, is an emotional experience, what we're going to do is we're going to keep chasing temporary new experiences rather than chasing the everlasting God. Or, on the opposite side of the spectrum, a shallow heart is the heart that is just looking for more insight. Uh, ironically, the shallow heart is oftentimes the person that says, man, I just want to go deep. Let's go deep. Man, so let's, let's get to the deep stuff, man. Then I just want to get fed. Let's do the deep stuff. And listen, I'm all for going deep. I'm all for mining the, the truth of God's word for, for insight. I'm all for that. But come on, I just can't tell you, man, how many times... Have I sat with somebody at a coffee shop or something like that, and they're usually real anxious and whatever, kind of, I don't know, unsettled. And they're like, man, we got to go deeper. we got to go deeper. Come on, we need more deep teaching. And da, 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 da. I'm like, bro, how about you love your neighbor? You don't need deep teaching. You need to deal with the fact that you're a jerk. <laughs> right? And come on, let's just be honest here. How many of us, we, we want depth, we want to get fed, but we're not walking in obedience to what we already know. And, and see, too many of us, in our information society, there's information everywhere. I mean, I love that. I'm an information guy. I love just learning and this and that. I'm not against that in any regard. But too many of us, this is what happens. We're educated beyond our obedience. We're educated beyond our obedience. And what we want is new insight. Instead of applying the insight we already have, that's a shallow heart. It's a shallow heart masquerading as a deep heart. And and listen, emotional experiences, going deep, these are good things. 
but they're the means and not the end. They're, they're meant to build our affection for Christ so that we live in greater obedience. But if, if we make them the end, we're shallow, right? Or, I mean, the shallow heart is the heart of someone who says they're a Christian but really has no desire to actually follow Christ. It's more about appearing to be a good person or making your parents happy or making your spouse happy or making someone else happy or, hey, I'm an American, that makes me a Christian, right? No, it does not, right? Or or perhaps most often, the person with the shallow heart is the person who looks to Jesus as a service provider rather than a savior. Because listen, if Jesus is your service provider, you will lose interest in him once he fails to provide the service you desire. This will show, by the way, that Jesus was never your God in the first place. Your God was what you thought Jesus could get for you. And when he fails to get what you want from him, you're going to bail. See, the person with the shallow heart thinks that they are a sufferer in need of a solution. And that may well be true. Many of us may be suffering and may be in need of solutions. But that is not your greatest problem or my greatest problem. Our greatest problem is that we are sinners in need of a savior. And Jesus did not come as your service provider. He did not come to serve you. He came to save you. And and indeed, if you make him your service provider, you're going to fall away at the first sign of persecution. You're going to fall away at the first sign of tribulation. Why would you stick around when life gets hard, if God is not acting as you wish he would? And and what you'll see in that moment is he was never God to you at all, because you were the one calling the shots. So I want to ask you, do you recognize that you're not simply a sufferer in need of a solution? You're a sinner in need of a savior. Because here's the deal. If you're blind to the reality of your sinfulness, you're also going to be blind to the beauty of God's grace towards you. See, because in our society, we're conditioned to deny that there's anything wrong with us. We're conditioned to deny that we're sinners, to deny that we ever make any mistakes. Because listen, everywhere else in the world... If we screw up, there's guilt attached to it. There's shame attached to it. There are major consequences attached to it. But the gospel frees us from all of that. We need to escape that sort of thinking when it comes to our relationship with God. If anything, our sinfulness is an opportunity to rejoice in God's goodness towards us. To be able to say, man, God, you have forgiven me of so much. Your mercy upon me is so great. Your grace upon me is so great. I can admit and just be honest about my shortcomings because I know you have forgiven me and you've accepted me? Have you been convicted of your sin? Do you, do you recognize that you're a sinner and that Jesus is your only hope? I mean, have you made him your Lord instead of just being interested in him because you want him to do your bidding? I mean, Jesus is not your service provider. He's, he's your savior. He's your Lord. He's worth giving everything for. Don't, I beg you, do not settle for the shallow heart. As for what fell among the thorns, he goes on, They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and their desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and their fruit does not mature. So we have the hard heart, we have the shallow heart. The thorny soil represents the divided heart. And these are the people that that hear God's word, they hear about Jesus, they accept it, they're excited, they begin to walk with Jesus, but eventually, because of the cares of the world, Jesus says, they walk away. They become interested in other things, The pursuit of earthly wealth gets in the way, and they make an absolutely tragic trade, trading Jesus for the things of the world. And I just want to give you two 
specific areas related to this where I think we need to be really careful in our culture to, to not allow thorns to kind of pop up in our soil, if you will. Is, is, and the first is this. See, for most of us in this room, if you're a follower of Christ in this room, there is very little risk that if you get taken out, if you, in, in other words, if you walk away from God, it's not going to be because of something blatantly sinful. Well, I'll give you an example. I, I'm guessing almost none of us, hopefully none of us, are going to wake up tomorrow morning and say, you know, I've had enough of the peace and joy that comes from knowing Christ. I think a life of crime is really a little more my speed. So I'm going to go just see how many terrible things I can do before I get caught. This is going to be great. See you later, Jesus. All right, none of us are going to do that. that that's ridiculous. Hopefully none of us. But, but instead, I, I think the far greater danger is this, is we take a good thing and we make it a God. We take a good thing and we give too much of our hearts to it and it dulls our affection for the Lord. We, we work so much that we can't make it to church, we can't join a small group, we can't serve, can't find time to pray, can't find time to study the scriptures, or, or man, this is a big one in our, in our neck of the woods. We let our kids' sports schedules just get totally out of control. So, so they're what drives the family schedule. I'm all for kids' sports. My kids will play sports, but they're not the be-all, end-all. Or, or we say, man, I'm just going to sign up for a little bit too much school, and I'm not going to be able to be as involved, but it's only going to be for a little while. And, and what's happened? We, we've taken a good thing, and we've made it a God. We've essentially scheduled God out of our lives. Our, our faith has been choked out by the things of the world. We need to be careful of that. And the second danger is very simple, and it's this, busyness. Busyness. Because let's be honest, we as a culture have made busyness fashionable. Right? Like, it's cool to be busy. And if you're not busy, there's something wrong with you. Right? Like, what do you mean you're not busy? Oh, I'm very relaxed because I schedule my life appropriately and get enough sleep. What? <laughs> Who are you? Because here's what we've done. We've equated busyness with significance, and that is incredibly toxic, and I've seen that in my own heart. I, I managed to find the time to read a book on busyness recently, and uh, <laughs> it was a short book, because, hey, I'm a busy guy, but <laughs> I love what the author said. He said this. He says, busyness is like sin. Be killing it, or it will be killing you. The fact is, busyness just chokes the life out of us spiritually. If someone asks you how you're doing and your first thought, first thought is to say, oh, I'm busy, man, I know we've just accepted that and that's the default, but that should be a huge red flag. That is an indication that something needs to change. And listen, there's a difference between having a full schedule and being busy. In fact, knowing our capacity and knowing what we have the time and energy for can help us avoid busyness so we can schedule the things that are most important to us and be able to say no to other things. I, if I have to say no to something, I try to say, instead of saying no, I'm too busy, I try to say no, I have a full schedule. And you might say, haha, that's cute, little word game you're playing there. But it's not a word game. It's not a word game. It's me saying, if I say yes to you, I am going to become busy. And time with my family and times of, times of rest and time with the Lord is going to get squeezed out. So I'm saying no. And see, some of us, we're so busy because we've let our priorities get out of whack. Because 100% of people have time for that which is most important to them. 100%. 
We're just confused about what is most important. Or, perhaps worse, we start believing that ultimate joy and significance can be found in something other than God. So what we do is we just we run around and drive ourselves crazy in this rat race of, of busyness trying to find significance. And all the while, God is standing here saying, hey, I'm right here. Be still and know that I am God. You're after significance. Significance is found in me. You're after joy. Joy is found in me. Listen, I care more about your joy than you do. God, do you understand that? God cares more about your joy than you do. And he says joy is found in him. Man, the, the cult of busyness, I know it's popular. It will devastate you. Don't succumb to it. And, and listen, your significance comes from God, not from your double-booked schedule. Some of us need to hear that. Your significance comes from God, not your double-booked schedule. And, and, and listen, I, I know you've got a lot going on. So do I. But that's not why you're so busy, is it? Because if we're honest, you're busy because you need to be busy. Because you've made it your identity. You wouldn't know what to do if you weren't busy. That, that's the real issue, isn't it? I mean, for the, for the sake of your heart... For, for the sake of the heart of the people you love, for the sake of the health of your soul, for the, for the sake of your joy, for the sake of your spiritual life, let that go. I mean, work hard, do great things, but be vigilant about keeping busyness out of your life. Your identity is found in Christ. Significance is found in Christ. And, and here's the real danger of both of those issues by the way, of, of, of making good things God's or of becoming obsessed with busyness and getting all busy, is, is if you have a garden and a wild dog or something runs through it and just sort of goes crazy, you instantly no longer have a garden, you have a plant graveyard, right? Like every, boom, oh, look what happened. Very clear, it's done. But, but that's not how the thorns work. The, the thorns start almost imperceptibly. The thorn, there's no appearance that anything has even gone wrong when the thorns start. But slowly and surely, they grow and they grow and they grow and they choke the life out of a plant. And, and so it is with these, these issues. They start small, but they're just devastating if we let them grow to their fullest. As for what was sown on good soil... This is the one who hears the word and understands it in an honest and good heart and bears fruit with patience. So finally, we have the fruitful heart. We have the soft heart, the heart that hears the word of God with an honest heart. This means you hear the word of God and you don't play those games we all like to play where we do all these little gym, mental gymnastics to say, well, here's why this doesn't apply to me. I'm so glad they're here to hear this. They really need it, but it's not for me. Right, come on, we all play those games. God says the soft heart is one that hears it honestly. This means you hear the word and when it presses on you, your response isn't denial. Your, your response is confession and repentance. And what's interesting is that Jesus encountered all four soils during his ministry. That there were the Pharisees and religious leaders who refused to believe. There were, in John chapter 6, we hear about people that were very excited about following Jesus, but then he starts dropping some difficult teaching on them, and they're like, eh, never mind, we're out. Or we have people like the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18 that wanted to follow Jesus, but the pull of materialism was just too much. And then we have people that, that followed Jesus and said, I'll follow you regardless of the cost. We, we have people that hear the word with joy and enthusiasm and, and love for Christ, and the promise is, 
that this sort of life will bear fruit for the kingdom of God. The fruit will look different from person to person, but there's fruit. It will be there. It is promised. So Jesus goes on. He says this, No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. A, a life that bears fruit is like a light in a dark house. It's not a floodlight that blinds people when they walk in, but, but it's a light. It's, it's a light. And it's a life that bears fruit is a light in a dark world. He goes on, For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, come on, if that's not a terrifying Bible verse, I don't know what is. Right? A couple of years ago, I had the pleasure of serving on a jury, and that was a joke, by the way. <laughs> and <laughs> we get a couple of days into the trial, and the district attorney introduces some text messages into evidence between the defendant and somebody else. And as these text messages are being read, at first, my first thought was I was sort of annoyed at the DA, thinking, bro, um, I'm no lawyer, but we could have saved ourselves a lot of time by starting with these. They were incredibly incriminating. What should we do with the stolen stuff? It's like, <laughs> come on. <laughs> it wasn't quite that bad, but it was really close. But my second thought was this, man, I'll bet these two people, when they were texting back and forth, they never thought in a million years that these text messages would be read in court. After all, it was a private, secret conversation, right? Something to think about, by the way, before the next text message you send. <laughs> but Jesus says a day is coming when secrets will be exposed. Our hard hearts will be exposed. Our hidden garbage will be exposed. And let's just be honest. The reality is secrecy is becoming more and more of a myth in our society with social media and the Internet. And we're just, our lives are much more public than they once were. So the best thing that we can do is to keep our lives f as free from secrets as we possibly can. Unless you are planning a surprise party or dealing with sensitive information at work, we need to keep our lives as free from personal secrets, my own junk that I am hiding from the world as we possibly can. And if you've got them, man, br bring them to light yourself. Don't wait for someone to discover them. Bring them to light yourself. Get the help that you need. Listen, it's okay not to be okay. I know there can be all this pressure in church world to sort of, you know, look like you've got it all together. And let's be honest, we all know that's nonsense. We know we're all messed up. Nobody's buying the facade, right? It's okay not to be okay. Just don't be a liar about it. Just don't stay there. Don't keep it hidden. Because our garbage, it grows in the dark. But, but it shrinks in the light. It shrinks in the light. A person with secrets, you know this, they're not happy. There's, not, there's no peace. There's no joy. And I know the pushback on this. If you're arguing with me in your head right now, let me take a guess at what you're what you're saying. Brian, fine, I get it. I, I understand the wisdom in that, but I just can't do it. 
Can't do it. Because if I confess my junk, if I bring my secrets to light, it's going to hurt people that I care about. Gosh, if I confess to my spouse, gosh, if I confess to my boss, if I confess to my parents, if I confess to my kids, if I confess to my my closest friends, oh, it's just going to hurt them so much. I just can't do it. Let, Let me tell you the truth. You already hurt them. And confession doesn't hurt people. Sin hurts people. Confession doesn't hurt people. Sin hurts people. I have never hurt anybody by confessing to them. I, to my shame, admit I have hurt a lot of people by sinning against them. A pastor I listen to all the time named Andy Stanley puts it this way. He says, your secrets are like buried splinters. If you don't flick them out, they're only going to get worse. Confession doesn't hurt people. Sin hurts people. Confession starts the healing process. And listen, if you bring your secrets to light, I freely admit to you, your life will probably be hard for a while. Your life will probably be difficult for a while. Your life might be very complicated for a while. But but if you live with your secrets, your life is going to be complicated forever. There's going to be pain in your heart forever. And listen, your secrets will be exposed eventually, almost certainly by the people you love, by the way. Almost certainly. We, We believe we can hide things from people forever. It's just not true. And if they're not exposed by them, they will be exposed by God. So it's in your best interest to get them out now. And God says, excuse me, Pull that back. And, and get them out to not just God, because God already knows, right? Oh, thank you for sharing that new information with me. No, God already knows. Get your secrets out to someone else. If you're serious about getting out underneath the burden of your secrets, if you're serious about crushing the sin behind your secrets, you've got to tell somebody. You've got to tell somebody. Andy Stanley also says that, that, that sins we keep between us and God, we tend to repeat. And that's true. I mean, if you want not just a clear conscience, but a changed life, you've got to bring someone in. I'm not saying you've got to bring everybody in, but you've got to bring somebody in. I've got people in my life that I'll, I confess to regularly. J- James chapter, chapter 5 tells us, confess your sins to each other and you will be healed. Confess your sins to each other. It's okay to not be okay. Just don't stay there. Don't be a liar about it. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. For the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Here's here's the principle. The person who welcomes God's rule and reign in their life is the person who bears more and more fruit for God's kingdom. But, But if all you're after, you're not after... God's word, you don't really have a soft heart. If all you're after is an emotional experience, you very well may get it, but it's not going to sustain you and it will eventually feel empty. If all you're after is more insight, perhaps you will get that, but it will not sustain you. If all you're after is an entertaining sermon, then you probably won't get it from me, but you might get it from somebody else. But it's not going to sustain you. If you're indifferent or give only a passing interest to the things of God, your heart will remain cold. But if you hear with a receptive and open heart, that is soft to the things of God, God will make his home in your heart and help you to grow in your understanding. The reward of growing in Christ is that further growth is possible. 
And we can't become lazy because we know this principle to be true in any other area of life. When we stop moving forward, we've already started moving back. The person who says that they, are, they have arrived has already started regressing. And the scriptures say that even what we have, if we think we've arrived, if we think we know it all, even the little that we have will be taken away. So we've spent all the, that time on the first parable and a couple other statements. We're going to blaze through the last two quickly. Matthew chapter 13, we'll be reading starting in verse 24, and we'll drop down a few verses to get the explanation of this parable. It's called the parable of the weeds. It says this, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. What a jerk. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the, the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. I'll drop down to verse 36. Then when the crowds had left and went into, uh, and went into the house, then he left the crowds, excuse me, and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Great speech, Jesus. What did it mean? He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. We clear on everybody's role here? Verse 40. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels... They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. A couple of thoughts on this one. The, the weeds that Jesus refers to are a particular kind of weed that was common in this area that, that initially, when it would start to grow, looked exactly like a, a healthy stalk of wheat. So, and what would happen is the roots of the, of the weed would get entangled with the wheat. So if you pulled up the weed, it would, it would ruin the wheat. And then, what would and then at, it was only at the end, when, the, when these things are ready to be harvested, that the weed would look like one thing and the wheat would look like another. They were indistinguishable until the end. And this parable reiterates that what ultimately matters is your heart, not your outward behavior. Because listen, come on, virtually anybody can fake it for a little while, can't they? I mean, you can fake it, I can fake it, we can all fake it. And Jesus is just has said over and over again in so many different ways, using so many different metaphors, he says, I'm not interested in merely external behavior changes. I want to transform your heart. Because listen, a heart that is soft towards the things of God, that is transformed, will lead to outward obedience. But, but, but outward obedience, I'm a good person, look at all these good things I can do, da 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 that almost never leads to a transformed heart. 
And the truth is, only when you see Jesus for who he is, only when you see what Jesus has done for you, can your heart be changed. You and I can change our behavior for all sorts of reasons. But it's only when you grasp what Jesus has done for you that you'll truly give your heart to him, that you will freely and willingly repent of sin, that you'll joyfully turn from your old ways and follow him into newness of life. That's why the cross is so critical, that we might see that the beginning of our faith is God's great love for us despite the fact that we're sinners. But Jesus says that when final judgment comes, there will be separation of the wheat and the weeds. A separation of those who are genuinely converted, who have hearts soft towards the things of God, and those who simply tried to look the part. And Jesus says, for those who have kept him at arm's length, for those who have rejected him, for those who have chosen to be their own God, that indeed there will be judgment. And perhaps we hear that and we say, well, I don't really like that. I like this other stuff about the soils. Yeah, that's fine. But I don't like the idea that God can judge me. Isn't it interesting? In that very statement, we are saying that we don't want God to judge us, but by making that statement, we're judging God. We are evaluating God based on what seems right to us. We've placed ourselves in authority over God. You don't have to be a Christian to realize that's ridiculous. I mean, God help us. With our hard hearts, we think so much of ourselves and so little of him. I mean, is God loving and merciful and kind? Yes. Has God gone to outrageous lengths to secure our salvation if we might hear his word with a soft heart and receive his grace? Yes. Is there judgment coming for those who reject him and persist in unbelief and rebellion and half-hearted behavior modification? Yes. And I said this two weeks ago if you were here. I think Sometimes we get hung up with these, these, these metaphors like, you know, fiery furnace, that seems a little excessive or whatever the case may be. On the one hand, these are metaphors. But on the other hand, consider what they are metaphors for. Probably not a day at the beach, right? And we need to be crystal clear on this point that the destruction and judgment that is coming is a destruction of their own choosing. It's separation from God. It's separation from the only one who can satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. It's continual longing without satisfaction. That is a picture of hell. Judgment is coming for those who reject him, but for those who don't, there's glory. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father, verse 43. And, And all of this begs the question, what are you? Are you wheat? Or weeds? Do you have a heart that is soft towards the things of God? Or are you hard towards the things of God and just trying to put on a, a front? Our, our last passage, last parable is Mark chapter 4. It's another farming parable, and I, it's a short one, and I hope it encourages you. And, and he said, The kingdom of God is as a man, as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. That the seed here, once again, is the truth of God's word. And in this case, the, the, gar- the gardener or the person scattering the seed is, is us, as followers of Christ, going out and, and, and sharing God's love. And, and much in the same way that an a ancient farmer likely did not understand all of the specific science behind seed germination and growth, they just know we do certain things and it grows. Hey, cool. In the same way, we don't know exactly how does affection for God grow in the human heart. But we know that God is ultimately the one who does it. It says, the earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. 
But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts it to the sickle because the harvest has come. And here's the message of the parable. When you share God's love, share God's word, it will not ultimately be in vain. Not every seed will grow, but rest assured, a harvest is coming. It will, it will be slow, it will take time, but this slow, steady, unstoppable growth is happening. And a harvest of those who would respond rightly to God's word is promised. The gardener's job is to continue sowing the seed. It is the farmer, or excuse me, it is God who creates the growth. Though the word of God will harden some hearts, it will soften others. And the harvest is sure because God will bring it about. So I have two very quick application points for you and then we'll be done. First, I invite you to to receive God's word as good soil with a soft heart. Let let go of your guilt and shame. Let go of your pride that says you don't need this. Leave behind your pursuit of the cares of this world and see Jesus for who he is, a king so great and so glorious that, that following him could cost you everything and it would be so incredibly worth it. Don't settle for taking Jesus as your service provider. Make him your Lord. Submit to his rule and reign in your life and with humble joy find in him the the answer to the deepest longings of your heart. And then second, if you're a follower of Jesus, keep spreading the message of the kingdom of God, lovingly spreading the message of the kingdom of God, knowing that the harvest is sure. Keep loving when it doesn't make sense. Keep responding to hate with kindness. Keep being generous in Jesus' name. When the name of Jesus is mocked, and it will be mocked, continue loving. When our cause seems hopeless, continue loving. When you're attacked, continue loving. When the bad guys seem to be winning, don't fight them. It only makes it worse. Continue loving. Forget about winning arguments and seek to win hearts. Continue praying. Continue proclaiming the truth of God's word with your mouth and demonstrating what life in his kingdom is like with your actions. Remember that the blessing of the world through the people of God, it's not a power play. It's not some quick revolution. It's nothing like that. But it starts small and it grows slowly and quietly but ultimately it permeates the world with love and nothing can stop it. So receive God's word with a soft heart that's open to the instruction of your heavenly father who loves you and then keep sowing and trust him with the results. Because while it's true that God's word will harden some hearts, it will soften others. And nothing less than an abundant Harvest is promised. Our call is just to continue to sow the seed. Let me pray for you. We'll be done. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is inspired by you and it is profitable for us. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters and for myself that we might be men and women with soft hearts, that we might be good soil, that we might continually be open to the things of you. God, don't let us settle for emotional experiences. Don't let us settle for simply gaining new insight. But God, give us a hunger to know you and to know you deeply and to know you fully and to live lives of obedience in response to who you are. Thank you for your grace that allows us to be honest about our shortcomings. Thank you for your grace that loves us in our darkest moments. 
And I pray that in response to your grace, God, we might go forth into this world with confidence, living lives of love, being humbly joyful, knowing where our joy comes from, knowing where our significance comes from. So, God, would you send us out from this place to live lives of love as good soil seeking to reflect your love to this world, to a world that so desperately needs it. We thank you that you go with us in that endeavor, and we pray these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. Have a wonderful rest of your weekend, and we'll see you soon.